This week, the IPCC presented the third part of their report, written by the world's leading climate scientist. And this is the part about solutions to global warming. The report is a stark warning that we're almost out of time to limit temperature rises to the goal set in the Paris Agreement of 2015. And this often dull scientific language is actually a passionate plea to everyone, to businesses, to cities, to citizens, to you, to industry, to investors and farmers. And they call for a radical transformation of the way that we live our lives. And this is the third part of the report. And the first one came out last August, and that was the code red for humanity, if you remember that line of those days about rising greenhouse gas emissions. And then the second part was about the impact. And that one was presented in late February, if you hadn't noticed it, because uh, the war in Ukraine uh, just started. Uh, don't blame yourself because the whole world missed it because everybody was occupied with Ukraine. But it was an important report and it mapped out impacts of warming. It spoke about more wildfires, more downpours, extinctions, heat waves, droughts, sea level rise. And past reports of the IPCC have been directed mostly at governments. But this one is for all 8 billion people of us here on the planet. And the message is that it's still just, it's still possible. But we need to change everything right now. There's no time to lose. We have to consume less. We have to fly less. We have to arrive less. We have to turn down the thermostat at home in the winter, etc. And our governments, most and for foremost, will have to act. Alastair, welcome here. These were my opening lines. What about you? Thanks, Alex. That's that's great. Yeah, I've been covering this report a little bit for Thomson Reuters Foundations. I've written about it and read, read it. it. I got it under embargo, although it did run very late. It ran record late through the weekend until they got it approved on Sunday. It was meant to be released on Monday morning uh, European time, but it got pushed back six hours or so because of the the arguments they have about just the the wording, the commas, the changing the la the, the words here and there. So. And the press conference, they, they said the, the big message here was it's now or never, um, was the line that a lot of the world's headlines media picked up. Um, we need bold action to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial times. You know, we're all, we're all already at 1.1. So, you know, it's, we hear comments about this IPCC report. It's, it's the last chance saloon. We're at the edge of the precipice. The window of opportunity is closing. But in a way, I wonder if they're really being honest with us, you know? Um, or has that chance actually pretty much disappeared? And we just have to get used to a different sort of framing that, you know, 1.6 degrees is going to be better than 1.7. 1.7 is going to be better than 1.8. I've got a horrible feeling that, you know, when I, when I talk to climate science scientists, a lot of them are pretty nervous and think, you know, the framing should be, um, you know, really, you're, you're building up, um, you're building up to, to fail here, perhaps as a, a bit of a risk. But, you know, the IPCC has to balance the idea that it's still possible to, to do this. But we really, really need to do something right now. Um, you know, the IPCC leaders, when they were asked about this, at the news conference said, you know, there's no alternative. We have to solve this problem. We can't just let the planet keep on heating up and, um, you know, we have more and more heat waves, more and more disruptions to food supplies, to water supplies. 
people people are dying already from this we can't we can't give up so we we can't fall into despair so we've got to say it's still technically feasible is the way that they're framing it at the moment yeah it's still technically feasible to halve our emissions um pretty much by the end of this decade as as they wanted but you know it's becoming a hard sell to to stick to that and it's a very hard balance you know um when when the when the, when temperatures are rising emissions are rising everything's going in the wrong direction so you know jim ski the co-chair of the ipcc's working group 3 in his news in his new re- news release that this was the phrase that was picked up upon it's now or never if we want to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees without immediate and deep emissions reductions all across sectors it will be impossible so you know we've got to hope that you know the governments an alliance of young people citizens us businesses and so on as you were saying is going to make it possible but but let's not underestimate what it takes you know the the IPCC's been warning for for years that the problem's getting worse but it's always said you know well it's still possible to fix this um some climate scientists when they said you know it's now or never uh they were joking afterwards apparently saying well it's now or never well will there be a new now tomorrow um how long how long does now last for you know so it's it's um you know there's a litany of these failed goals through climate history you know 1992 um in rio at the first rio the rio de janeiro summit that set up the whole you know system for negotiating climate agreements uh they set up the un uh convention on climate change um you know the world set a goal of limiting emissions by rich nations to 1990 levels by the year 2000 that was a voluntary goal but it was missed um i have a book on my bookshelf downstairs from 2008 based on the previous ipcc report which was titled 7 years to save the planet you know that that ran out in 2015 um and an ipcc report back in 2018 about the how to get to 1.5 spawned headlines saying 12 years to save the planet um we're four years later and emissions are still going up you know so not enough has happened so you know it's um i don't know it's a hard balancing act um to to get this right you know you don't want people to despair you've got to keep the door open but that door is slamming in our faces really really fast yeah and it's i i think it has a bit to do with the it's a communication challenge of course because it is not like a dying person you get sicker and weaker and you spend more and more time in bed and ultimately you die and it's game over uh, we talk about uh, a living ecosystem on the planet of which the quality is getting worse and worse but there's not some kind of finite end that we say okay now the planet is completely dead and, and unless we would end up in a kind of uh Mars or Pluto situation where just as far as we know nothing lives um but but that's not what we're talking about but of course the break is going to be the breaking point is more loosely defined and it's different in in different countries so let's say uh, a relatively well of well organized country uh, in a moderate zone like Sweden um will have a different definition of end date uh, of of being still a livable country than a country like uh, like Somalia so it's um 
it's difficult communicating this. What they try over and over again is, of course, take action. And, and those that said in 1992 during the Rio conference, uh, we should urgently take action, they were right. Because in those days, what you needed to do is only reduce emissions with like one and a half or two percent per year, which is perfectly doable. But they realized that if you wait too long, you have to do things like uh, uh, dropping 43% in seven and a half years, which is basically our task. Uh, and they realized that that was absolutely impossible. So, um, yeah, so so what we saw now is uh, those speeches of um, UN Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres, they become more and more desperate all the time. I don't recall yeah. any Secretary General of the UN speaking so passionately and desperately as as Guterres, something which I'd never thought in the guy when he started, by the way. Yeah, that's um, so extraordinary. Yeah. Quite a quite a transformation. He looked like a bit of personally, I think a bit of a dull, uh, dull gray old diplomat when he took over. And he's, <laughs> he's, 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 he's come alive on, on this issue and quite a few others. I mean, Ukraine is another mm. one. So, um, yeah, he gave this 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 other jaw-dropping speech about uh, the risks of of climate change to to introduce the report, and he even accused some governments and businesses of lying, which which I do all the time, but I'm not <laughs> the second the, the secretary general of the UN. But for him, in that position, saying out loud publicly that governments is uh, are lying, wow, that's that's strong strong language for for the top diplomat of the world. And uh, so he noted that that the, the pledges for action, like uh, net zero by 2050, were largely talk. Uh, many countries set bold targets, but then they don't follow up with action. And they, those governments know perfectly well that they'll they'll be out of power by then, whether that is a a full blown democracy or a completely different form. Uh, you know that what you do now, you're you're not the one in charge by by 2050. So. He said, for instance, some governments and business leaders are saying one thing but doing another. Simply put, they are lying. But then he, he thanked youth and activists and indigenous people for sounding the alarm about worsening crisis. And he urged creation of a grassroots movement that cannot be ignored, which I believe is already uh, happening and, and taking shape, especially uh, among the, the Fridays for Future uh, community. And if you live in a big city, he said, a rural area or a small island state, or if you invest in the stock market, if you care about justice and our children's future, I'm appealing directly to you. Demand that renewable energy is introduced now at speed and at scale and demand an end to coal-fired power and demand an end to all fossil fuel subsidies. So I think this was uh, this was a strong language, a strong speech. The last point is absolutely irrelevant, of course, because worldwide we still uh, give far more subsidies to fossil fuels than we give subsidies to renewable energy. So we're basically using taxpayers' money to destroy the planet that we are living on, which I don't think is written in any constitution in the world, whatever system they are uh, representing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. He was uh, Guterres is again sort of uh, we you know the first time in August he said that you know this is code red for humanity when they had the first part of this report came out and then last month um, or in February yeah, similarly he was extraordinarily outspoken. He's he's been just just you know this is just a couple of pages long this speech too. It wasn't like a very long one, but it 
just hit the governments between the eyes being accused of lying you know in in britain in the parliament you can't you can't that's a word you're not allowed to use you have to be you get thrown out if you call people call people out for lying so so maybe we should just have a quick look at some of the key findings of this um beyond the the sort of these yeah. great sort of rhetoric and so on so you know um it's a long long report as we'll come on to you know it's about three thousand pages long um i'm not sure that Anybody, any individual has actually read the whole thing yet? Perhaps a few people will. I'm not quite sure. Well, not but anyway, me, I the, can the, tell you. <laughs> you will, you'll be reading it. You'll be no, reading it. No, no, it's way, way too much. And some parts <laughs> no, no. are way too complicated as well. I read the summary for policymakers, which um, was went, a lot of it went over my head as well. And that's only 60 pages. You know, that's the summary for policymakers this time around was um, much longer than they normally have them. And, and it's laced with, laced with, footnotes as well um what one thing the ipc has done actually in the last few years is to give headline statements headline findings so you can get those down to a couple of pages normally so that those are handy um but but the basic problem outlined in this report was that you know greenhouse gas emissions worldwide have continued to rise in the last decade this, this report only goes as far as 2019 um in the last decade that the less bleak news is that the growth was slower than in the noughties and from 2000 to 2009. So it's slowing down, but, you know, the increases came from all sectors, energy, transport, and agriculture. Um, there are some good things, you know, that, that there is improvement of renewable energy. Um, improvements in energy efficiency are all helping to slow down the growth. But still, you know, we got... We still got population growth, and there's still growing in industries around the world. People are becoming wealthier, therefore they're tending to use more, um, use have have more emissions. So, overall, emissions of greenhouse gases were the equivalent of about 59 billion tons. <laughs> it's a massive, <laughs> unmanageable number, isn't it? As you were saying earlier, with close to eight billion people on the planet, that's about seven tons each. And of course, the rich emit the most uh, up here in um, Europe, where I'm living, and over in North America, we're among the worst uh, per capita. Um, and then, you know, they go on to say that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees over pre-industrial times uh, will mean that we've got a peak emissions before 2025 at the latest. That's three years' time. And they've got to be reduced then by 43% by 2030. Um, that that is just and it's hard to get your mind around a number like that when we had the pandemic and we felt that the whole world economy was shut down emissions fell uh, by about six percent um that wouldn't cut it you'd have to do that every year from 2025 by much steeper to get to get a almost halving within within five years so it's it's kind of pie in the sky a lot of people say um but yeah, because you know, such falls have never happened before in the modern economy. Um, you know, they've they've um, a virtual halving this decade has been the mantra for a few years. Um, but it's it's I don't know for me it's kind of turning into cloud cuckoo land of wish fulfillment. Um, you know, we have during the after the collapse of the Soviet Union, emissions fell by about thirty percent in Russia um, over a few years. That was perhaps the most dramatic fall. 
you know, places like France have managed to cut their emissions when they shifted over to um, nuclear power um, from fossil fuels um, very dramatically. But but and you know, we've had things like the pandemic and you had the the global financial crisis. But most times, it's just in peacetime. The idea, well, of course, we're not in peacetime at the moment so much. But uh, um, in peacetime, doing this is is pretty a pretty big ask. So, you know, roughly halving them and net zero carbon emissions in the twenty fifties. It's a wonderful, wonderful prospect, it, um, and it is technically feasible. Is is the message that they're putting across? You know, every everybody can do something. Cities would need to improve energy efficiency. You can have better building strategies to reduce urban emissions. Everybody's got to get on board. The governments have got to legislate for cuts. The governments have got to set decent goals, and so on. Every everybody's got to get on on board. Yeah, and in, indeed, this is this challenge is massive. I mean, imagine the government would tell to you or to any listener. By 2030, so in just just what is it, seven and a half years from now, you get uh, 43% less of the energy than you are using now. So for heating your home or for driving your car, uh, etc. And you just somehow work it out. And that's basically the task that the whole world is giving themselves now. And that is, uh, of course, not doable. It, it could be doable if we would work together and would have, you know, one dedicated government that would, 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 would guide us and motivate us. Uh, but I fear this is not going to happen, but I do believe that it should happen. And um, what it also shows is the huge imbalance in responsibility for the warming. So 10% of the households with the highest per capita emissions contribute disproportionately large share of, of global households greenhouse gas emissions. So there's at least 18 countries have now sustained greenhouse gas emissions reductions for longer than 10 years, but the challenge remains enormous. So uh, there are a few causes for hope. Uh, so so if, uh, if we look at 2010, there have been sustained decreases of up to 85% of the cost of solar and wind energy and batteries. And that is amazing that in, mm. in just a bit more than one decade, the decrease of 85% in the cost of solar, wind and batteries. And that is, of course, uh, where the future lies. And that, uh, that is a, a, uh, an expansion move that has certainly not, uh, not ended yet. Um, renewables are cheaper than coal and the prices also don't swing around like oil and natural gas which is actually um, good for 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 your economy as well um, we saw of course after russia's invasion in, in ukraine the extreme fluctuations in uh, fossil fossil fuels now government cities investors industry everybody is getting more involved and is setting net zero targets and uh, even if, as, as uh, the UN Secretary General Guterres says, uh, some of them uh, in, in the past have been selling lies. And I think that is a really notable trend. It, I, I noticed it for the first time so clearly during COP26 um, in Glasgow in, in November last year, where I thought it was remarkable how motivated a lot of businesses were to really uh, to make a change in an, at, a, at a rate that I hadn't uh, noticed before so getting on track for only one and a half degrees warming only is it's still huge 
But getting yeah. on track for one and a half degrees warming would, would require using about 95% less coal, 60% less oil, and 45% less gas by 2050. So basically, you have to stop coal completely. You have to, 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 to get rid of oil and gas as well. Um, and um, so, uh, and this is taken from 2019 levels, of course. So the electricity uh, grids, they run on renewable energy sources. And this whole combination of uh, the, the uh, forced uh, breaking of our relationship with uh, fossil fuel and gas uh, and the rapid development of renewable energy, um, that, that is the, the, the death knell for the, for the fossil fuel industry. And that also makes it extremely interesting what is happening now on, on the worldwide energy markets um, as, as a result of this, this tragic uh, and brutal invasion in, uh, in Ukraine. So the fossil fuel industry uh, will, of course, say that if we do this, this will ruin our economy and uh, instead of them ruining the planet, which they never say. But <laughs> if, you, if you look at containing warming to two degrees, um, which realistically will at a certain moment become more the target we're aiming for and then hoping that we stay under two instead of one and a half. But uh, containing warming to two degrees, they would require actions that limit global economic growth by 1.3%. So then you end up at 2.7% by 2050. But that loss would likely be outweighed by the overall economic benefit of limiting warming. So these are the conclusions of, of, of the report. And this is just not willful thinking. These are, you know, scientists making calculations and, and measurements and all this. So governments also would need to enact policies towards changing people's lifestyle and behavior, such as more encouraging work from home, uh, reduce travel, uh, reduce car use in favor of uh, cycling and walking and promoting plant-based uh, diets uh, instead of eating meat. And uh, these would cost some sectors, but it would boost others as well, uh, while also preventing losses in, in areas such as, uh, as public health, which is also a huge cost to the economy. So you get more healthy people, you save money there as well. So this kind of, this kind of demand side mitigation efforts could reduce global greenhouse gas emissions in some sectors by up to 70% by 2050, the report says. Yeah, and um, yeah, there are sort of extraordinary numbers, aren't they here? One of the other things that the report talks about is this need to suck carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They say that um, it's now unavoidable that we have to we'll have to use technologies um, to to or um, ways of getting carbon out of the atmosphere to to as a supplement to this focus that everybody's going to have on cutting emissions. So a lot of media reports focused on this idea, on this idea of exotic technologies for getting carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, but, the, you know, there is a one um, low-tech tested option, just plant trees, of course. Um, there was, um, I think it's Elon Musk who's got a, a prize out of a, millions of dollars for um, the best technology for um, getting carbon out of the atmosphere. And uh, an awful lot of people sent in things saying here's a tree I, i'll see if i can patent it <laughs> because this is the way because trees you know trees when they grow they're 
they suck carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to make their, their leaves, their branches, their roots, their trunks, um, and they're storing it away. So if we slow deforestation and we plant more trees around the world, then hey presto, we can solve quite a lot of this problem simply by doing that. And if you preserve soil soils better, or if you 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 can use the ocean as well as a sink, a way of sucking up uh, carbon from the air, you can you know kelp forests, um, huge great sort of seaweed growing up from the from the floor or sea grasses and, and things like that can also help to soak up this stuff. So that's a sort of low tech obvious option that has been around for millions of years for yeah. getting carbon out of the atmosphere. I mean, that's that's the way we got coal and oil in the first place. After yeah. all, it yeah, was old trees. plants that got buried, yeah? Trees are high tech in a way, yeah. Trees. And of course, it's <laughs> yeah. better to uh, maintain the existing forest than planting new trees because planting new trees takes uh, 30 years or so before they really start to, to, to contribute a lot. Um, and, a, and a rich biodiverse forest is, is the best one. So first of all, prevent cutting of trees and then yes, planting trees is always a good idea. And then yeah. making Elon Musk in charge and putting him on the buttons, the guy that you know makes fun rides in space, etc., burning mass amounts of, of, of fossil fuels. I'm not sure if I'm too much of a yeah. fan, but his <laughs> Teslas are fun, of course. Yeah, exactly, and, yeah. Um, yeah, but it's... it's uh, there's this website that tracks the flying of Elon Musk, which is amazing. There's one guy who's doing that. Oh, yeah? He's in public sources, so he's allowed to Has he to been to it. Mars yet? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and now Elon Musk seems to have offered this guy an enormous amount of money to give up his work. He's just being paid not to work, but he refuses to do so. He's actually now starting websites following other famous people, how much they are flying. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so one innovation... Uh, in, in this IPCC report is about uh, your and my everyday choices. And that is something rather new in the report. The report says that behavioral and cultural changes are a substantial overlooked strategy. And it has a whole chapter about it. It says, for instance, that uh, turning down heat, heating in the winter or air conditioning in the summer and taking shorter showers and, and less use of electric appliances and, and shift to, to public transit and uh, less meat and, and improved recycling, etc., etc., that can deliver an extra 1.7 billion uh, tons and, and 3 billion tons by 2050, just for those numbers, because numbers in podcasts are always horrible. So the number you should keep in mind is that by now we burn uh, 59 billion tons a year. So if you talk about... 1.7 or even uh, let it grow to about 2 billion uh, you talk about let's say somewhere 2 3 percent which is uh, which is uh, quite no sorry it's uh, it's more it's more like um, like uh, like about 4 percent so that is relevant so what you do is relevant it won't save the earth in itself but that is true for anything that you do even if the biggest government in the world uh, is taking drastic measures all alone, they, they can't change it. Even if, if China would be the only one tomorrow changing everything, even together with the US, we still wouldn't be there. We need everybody. So we need you as well. So I think that was an, uh, an interesting uh, approach in this report. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting approach. You know, all hands on deck, everybody. You know, going back a little bit to those um, exotic technologies that it talks about for removing carbon from the atmosphere, they've got these... Um, Things like the Swiss company Climeworks, which has a, a plant up in Iceland that 
actually has big fans and filters and it sucks the air through these filters and you know carbon dioxide is only 0.04 percent of the atmosphere so it's a pretty difficult it's like needles in a haystack all the time trying to suck this stuff out but they, they they've managed to do it and they're burying that the, this plant they have up there now is 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 going to be capable once it's up and running properly it's you know it's doing tests at the moment It'll be sucking four thousand tons of carbon dioxide out of the year, out of the air every year. Again, that's tiny. That's that's nothing. That's about equivalent to the annual emissions by three hundred people in America. But um, so it's 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 not going to do a lot, and it's really expensive at the moment. It's like uh, seven hundred dollars a ton for this. So it's it's way out of anybody's um, pocket, really. Um, when you can just plant a tree and achieve pretty much the same thing. But it's you know maybe maybe at scale these things can be done and the IPCC sort of says you know let's let's do everything we can let's let's not put our eggs all in one basket and say okay we can only plant trees we can only cut emissions let's develop these new technologies um, but but as you're saying you know this has got to be it's got to involve all of us now um, you know everyone can change their lifestyles I have I have a friend in Germany uh, Alex Kirschbaum who, who lives in Germany and. Um, He's sometimes talking, he talks about the environment a lot on German TV. And he said the other day he was, he was talking about how Germany should shift away from its dependence on Russian gas, um, even though, you know, Germany is hev very heavily dependent on Russia for, for its gas imports, keeping warm in the, in, the, in the winter. So he said he got flack from some people after this, um, after this interview for mentioning that he'd, I'd rather sit in the cold than use natural gas from Russia. So that so then when he, he got criticised for this, he decided he'd turned off the heat in his house, and he stopped taking warm showers in the last few days. So you know he says it's a bit uncomfortable but doable, and of course it's a tiny inconvenience compared to what the Ukrainians are enduring. It's a minor symbolic act, but it feels right. Um, uh, so you know all kudos to to my friend Eric. I mean I, I've turned down the thermostat at home here. I, I, during the day, I, I try and wear a T-shirt and a shirt and a sweater indoors. Um, I'm in Oslo in Norway, where it's pretty cold at the moment too. So, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I couldn't face a cold shower. <laughs> I don't know about you, Alex. <laughs> I'm not very good at cold showers either. I can tell you, but I, I admire this because basically, if you take a shower, you use some gas, and the money of that gas is pumped into uh, the economy of Russia, which uses uh, it to to fight a war in Ukraine. So, um, it's uh, it's again these you know tiny little uh, little things you can do. They they do make a change. Um, so that is uh, yeah, that's that's certainly something. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, for, for, for a few of you joined later, let, let me sum up where we are at, at, at this moment. So uh, we have this 3000 page report of uh, the best climate scientists in the world. Um, if I summarize where we are now, it's basically just three main issues. The first conclusion is that this is a huge challenge. challenge. So in order to limit global warming to one and a half degrees, in line with the Paris Agreement, uh, emissions must be no later than in 2025, that's about two and a half years away from us, and then they have to be reduced by 43%, and we just spoke about, uh, in, and that's in 2030, um, so you have five years to do that at that moment, which is um, close to impossible. 
but nothing is impossible i was taught and uh, we just uh, <laughs> spoke about how difficult that is and um, if we don't we are uh, the, the present uh, line that we are on is that the planet is set to get warmer by 3.2 degrees which is really really a disaster and now we talk about end of century it continues after that and uh, currently with all the climate pledges made emissions are still set to increase instead of going down rapidly by 14 percent and this is a world away from those 43 percent decrease so one there's a huge challenge and then my second conclusion i think i have four actually instead of three that i said the second one, and we spoke about that also, is that we need all hands on deck now. And that means that governments must move away from fossil fuels. And the report of the IPCC makes clear that we really need to move away now from fossil fuels in order to reach those, those reduction targets. And there needs to be widespread electrification, there should be improved energy efficiency, there should be use of alternative fuels. And there is some good news on this front because uh, we already spoke about the impressive, really impressive sustained decreases of up to 85% in the cost of all kinds of renewable sources of wind and solar and, and, and batteries. And also um, action needs to come from every industry. So we need all hands on deck and that includes really everybody and that's a repeated message everywhere in the report that there needs to be really substantial action in all sectors so uh, travel and finance and agriculture construction so every industry needs to be placing net zero strategies at the heart of its operations and these changes are likely to have benefits that are far beyond just climate change mitigation action needed to cut emissions is likely to improve public health. We spoke recently in another podcast that uh, pollution, and most of that pollution is, is uh, practically all of it is actually produced by fossil fuels, kills about 9 million people per year. You can save 9 million people's life if we also try to save the planet by producing less greenhouse gases. So um, also work on, on livable cities, for instance, to, to help people's uh, well-being. And uh, then the third one of those conclusions, so it's challenging, we need everybody on board. And the third one is the good news, it won't be expensive. And I know that is counterintuitive and I know that the fossil fuel industry is trying to do everything it can with all their might and all their advertising agencies to make you believe that uh, taking climate action is expensive but moving to net zero on a global scale is doesn't have to be costly a report was produced last year by leading economists that concluded that the cost of climate action will be far greater than uh, a net zero transition so this this notion was also supported in the ipcc report so even without taking into account the financial benefits of avoiding a total climate disaster, the suggested actions we need to take to reach net zero quickly enough would only reduce GDP by just a few percentage points by 2050. And um, so that's, yeah, that then leads to the main conclusion of the report, which you can formulate here 
optimistically or pessimistically, but let's go for a more optimistic formulation. That is, it is not too late. So the need for action is extremely urgent and it's, it's absolutely clear that we are far from where we need to be, but this latest report of the IPCC plainly states that limiting global warming beyond 1.5 Celsius is not beyond reach. And it will take a unified effort from global leaders in practically any podcast uh, where, where I'm, I'm speaking in. I, I always stress the importance of leadership and the lack of leadership that we get from our leaders worldwide. And we need um, to have our global leaders to be encouraged into, into more action and also action by individuals that voice their concern in order to reach these goals. And uh, there also needs to be collaboration from all sectors and between all sectors. And we need technological innovation at the forefront, which is actually, if you look at a challenge like the Second World War, if you see what it, there were of course, it's mostly remembered for the horrors, and, and, and rightly so. But there was amazing technological innovation because they had a wartime economy and they, they had one goal that everybody was fighting for and they, they reached it. Or in a more positive example, uh, take um, uh, getting a man at the moon before the end of this decade, as Kennedy uh, said in the early 60s, the technological innovation uh, by, by NASA, by being able to put a man on the moon, that has had impact in, in all sectors of life, including in healthcare and in, 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 in uh, communication technology and computers, etc. So it is not too late to stop the worst of the climate crisis. So these were, let's say, my four main conclusions from, from what I got from the report, and I didn't read all 3,000 pages, nor am I going to, <laughs> but from, from the pieces that I put together, I thought this was kind of the key messages. Yeah, that's a good way of summing it up, those four. Um, I think it's, um, it's interesting to think about, for me, I find it interesting to wonder about what moment in history would the climate crisis have been a good thing for international cooperation, you know, that we've, we've now got, um, after the end of the Cold War, you know, we've had the opportunity to, to, to do something about this, you know, in 92, when the Rio Convention was agreed, everybody was sort of looking forward to a new world. Um, the Russian, the Soviet Union had collapsed, all its smokestack industries were being mothballed and torn down and shifting towards a cleaner economy. And there was at that moment a great opportunity to really move forward fast on this. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. You know, the, um, everybody was still too concerned with the way that their economies were growing. In the Clinton years in, in the United States, the economy boomed. Everybody get, became prosperous. But of course, nobody, nobody, we didn't have the same awareness about climate change back in the early 90s as we do now. If that had coincided with our awareness of if Greta Thunberg had been around in the early 90s, if, if we'd had the same consciousness of what was going wrong, if we'd still had that feeling that, you know, we can still fix this with, you know, a good 30 years um, run at it, if everybody had been aware of it, then, then maybe we could have um, persuaded the world to work together. Um, unfortunately, the way that things have spilled out, you know, we've got 
well, inevitably, I guess, you know, the, the developing countries, of course, want to want to take part in, in, in the prosperity that we've all taken for granted um, in rich countries where we've been burning fossil fuels since the, uh, since the Industrial Revolution. You know, I'm, I'm sure people in Britain, where I'm from, were very happy about the Industrial Revolution in, <laughs> in the 18th century. But um, uh, sadly, you know, now we look back at it and think, oh, dear, that did usher in some pretty bad things um, alongside massive global prosperity, um, at least in, in Europe and so on. But, um, you know, if, if, we, if this had happened just at a different moment in history, perhaps we, we could have seized this a bit better. Now the global order is, it feels a bit shaky, doesn't it? We're, we're, it's kind of unraveling um, with what's happening in Russia, attacking Ukraine. We're not, you know, China's rising as a, a great global power to rival the United States and uh, maybe you know, maybe I mean, the China and the China and the United States did sign a new pact in, in Glasgow last year to cooperate on this problem, and, and maybe that's that's a way of building confidence between these great power rivalries in, in coming years. That if you can get China and the United States to to work together, then you know, maybe maybe we can we can do that. Um, uh, but by the way, I liked your, your comment, Evelyn, about. Um, on the live chat about uh, the, the footnotes making it impossible to, to read. <laughs> it's, it's very true. They're all very long. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I very much agree with, with, with your points. I think the 1990s, I mean, looking in hindsight, 1990s were the right moment to do two things. One put, um, uh, put, put, the, the, the nature and climate change and, and biodiversity and pollution, etc. All those issues put put the planets much higher on the agenda, which they tried at Rio in '92. But then we were all, you know, busy buying our new CD player and, and whatever else we were doing, and and the world was fascinated with Monica Lewinsky instead of the real issues. And um, I think the other main thing we should have used this peace dividend for in, in the 1990s was working much more towards equality and uh, giving much, much more serious support to aiding uh, the, the economies and the governments in the, in the developing countries because inequality has just been systematically on the rise uh, worldwide within countries and between countries. Um, there's just so much unfairness and in an in a deeply unfair system uh, of of distribution in the world we are not going to solve uh, our our global challenges so so basically poverty whether it's individuals or poverty of countries or poverty of quality of of, of governance in a way uh, poverty is an essential element in anything that we do and it it doesn't get Poverty itself doesn't doesn't get enough attention. You you see uh, attention for sub aspects of poverty. So people talk about hunger, or people talk about uh, filthy economies, or people talk about health problems in 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 in, in poorer countries, etc. But but the essence of it that uh, that the the, the the perks that we get from this beautiful planet that they are distributed uh, in a in a very unfair way that in itself doesn't get enough attention and the 1990s would have been ideal to do that and um, we somehow we 
we we missed the opportunity. We 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 believed there was very very much this this Fukuyama thinking of of you know the the uh, neoliberal Western model of 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 democratic government governance has now won. It is not only uh, proven to be uh, the most stable system, but it has also proven to be um, the the economically the best winning model. Which is which is now no longer true, and and of course Fukuyama said, said much more, so he hates it if you summarize it like this. But this is the way mm. that most people give interpretation to his thinking in in the early nineties. Um, most people never read further than just just his his well known article, and in his book he went much further. So um, he's now still still in a in in. He's still around saying, I never said it that way. But, but that, that is at least the way that we were all thinking, whether it was Fukuyama or we made it up ourselves or, or found it in a different way. But I think there we missed the ball. And now we, we, have, to, we have to solve climate change because if we don't, we are just all going to be roasted and toasted and it's, it's, it's the end of humanity. And that doesn't mean that it's the end of humanity when it, when we pass two degrees and it's 2.1 or so of, of course this is a a gradual movement but um it we we have no time to lose and it it's so sad that this message doesn't get through because there's always something and that something is always extremely relevant i mean the pandemic was something and that that killed millions millions of people and ukraine is something and ukraine is 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 a living nightmare as we haven't seen since the days of, of the Second World War and that we believed were far behind us. But there is always something that just gets more important than climate change because it's such a it's such a perfect storm. It is relatively slow moving. It doesn't hear it doesn't hit us everywhere at the same time. Uh, there's always this kind of kind of risk element. It's a bit how people stay addicted to playing uh, roulette or blackjack or whatever, because you there's always a chance that you might hit it or not. So you might get hit by extreme weather, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and uh, that is uh, that that is the perfect storm of um, the perfect nightmare of. Um, of governance because it, it, it nobody feels responsible nobody sees direct result of their actions but if nobody takes action we're all going down the drain and that is exactly the path that we are on yeah we got some interesting comments coming in from the, on the chat thank you our uburos i'm not sure what um that's that's it you got some interesting stuff here um it's um yeah, there's no refreezing the Arctic through, though. Uh -huh. So we're continuing to see exponential increases in the rate and amount of Arctic permafrost emissions. Yeah, it's a big issue. <laughs> um, yeah, there's tipping points here in the in the system, aren't there? Uh, I'm cutting out. I don't know if this is a family show or not. <laughs> so it's after it's after nine in Europe. It's after nine o'clock, so that's okay. So, so but um, you're right. There's an awful lot of um, big things mixed up in this um the tipping points i don't think have been addressed very well in the in this latest ipcc report where you know you may just go past the threshold um where you know they warn that things like you know tropical coral reefs are really it's critical that you keep the temperatures low because every tenth of a degree yeah. matters every tenth of a degree 
there's more and more of it gone. Every tenth of a degree, there's more and more ice that's spilling into the oceans. And at some point, you're going to hit a point where you can't stop it. And then, and then you know, it's, it's all sorts of radical changes are going to be triggered in the system. Um, and as we've been talking, this, you know, the, the, you've got to, the IPCC has to be sort of optimistic in a way about that we can still fix this because we can still fix this if we if we as you say we get all hands on board all all hands on deck um we can fix this um but the problem is getting everybody on board to do it when everybody is um you know distracted by not distracted of course but there are many other huge pressing pressing issues in the world that we need to we need to get a handle on and um just getting the world to focus on this it's it's difficult to plan history for, for around a way that we could do this. Um, you know, as we were saying in the in the 90s, um, the Soviet Union collapsed, and then all of a sudden, people in the United States and around the world who were opposed to the idea of a great common action against in a, a thing like this would would just turn around and say, "Oh, it's you commies still. Uh, you just changed tack now. Instead of talking about." Um, you know, defending communism, you're talking about let's all act together and ruin our economies by fi- fighting climate change. Um, no. So, you know, it's 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 just battles are fought on different fronts all the time. And we really need to get on with this, don't we? Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, especially in the US. It's something like, okay, there's a lot of people that hate government. And since you need governance to clean up a problem like climate change they are therefore against climate change and that's that's a, a fascinating way of seeing the world which i guess <laughs> must 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 give nightmares to all those scientists that know that the world doesn't doesn't work that way and uh, and I, I agree with the comment that you know some of these things are uh, are optimistic when uh, when the ipcc says for instance and i see evelyn will be uh, with you in a moment um, uh, when, when the IPCC says that uh, we need to rely on, on those uh, carbon dioxide uh, uh, reduction um, uh, or, or, or the, uh, the carbon dioxide capture uh, technology, of course, these, these scientists are critical about that as well. But what they are saying is that, you know, we... We really need everything, uh, everything that we can find. And uh, and as you already indicated, this thing in Iceland, I think it it takes the uh, CO two out of the air equal to three to four seconds of a year of a year's emissions, uh, and, and <laughs> right. it's, it's equal, I think, to a few hundred cars driving in America or something. So that is. That is, of course, but but you have to start somewhere. Let's say the first steam engine wasn't very efficient either. And um, so it's it's uh, it 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 takes time. I'm not a big believer in in all those kind of mechanisms. I do think that you can do a lot at the source of CO2. So, um, well, first of all, you should you should try not to burn it. So so either become more energy efficient or just uh, just spend less, consume less. Uh, but since you you we are still burning uh, fossil fuels right at the moment where you burn them you can try to capture them and that costs you about a third of the of the energy of your enterprise uh which which sounds like like really expensive but then you just have to uh to make pollution more 
expensive. So then, then industries are willing to do it. As of course, it's absolutely ridiculous that when I produce household waste and I put it outside on, on the curb on the street, that I have to pay tax that they pick it up. But if you're, let's say, a car industry and you, 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 you burn lots of fossil fuels and you just, just, uh, just, just let it all go in the air and you cannot see it, unlike my, my garbage that I put outside, that suddenly you don't have to pay for it. And that has been our system for the past 200 years. And that is the system that got us into this mess. So then we have to change that system and we have to put a, put a price on pollution, make pollution expensive. Because if you believe that our economy should stay roughly on the basic assumptions as we, we have had our economy in the past hundreds of years, then it, it means that if you take the liberty to pollute, and that is something that hinders other people, that you pay for it, make the polluters pay. It is, it is just that simple. So th that is, we, we, we need to, to tackle that. We also need to tackle subsidies on fossil fuels, which is really, I mentioned it before, which is really absurd that we still do that. So, yeah, and then when, once we've had all of those and a few more, then I think that if scientists say uh, it is, we should also focus on uh, those kind of technological innovations, I would say, well, why not? Because they might... They might turn better. If somebody said 20 years ago, we need better batteries, then people said, well, they haven't changed in the past 40 years. So why should we focus on batteries? Because we can't make them more efficient. Well, look at what happened afterwards in just the past decade. So uh, technologically, so much is possible. Again, look at the Second World War, the example I gave. Um, let's move to yeah. Evelyn. Take the next caller I'm pressing on. Hi, Evelyn. Good evening. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, good evening. Um, I was just, um, you know what I'm going to say about that Swiss company and, and stuff, but um, they got like $650 million in funding, like right after the report came out, uh, which, you know, good for them, I guess. But I think it's it's dangerous to put something like that into, into this report, like, because as you said, I think it was Alistair, all the headlines were like, okay, we're just going to suck it all out of the atmosphere or out of the air and then, it, you know, this will fix everything. So that gives like, since it was in all the headlines, that gives everybody like a way out or a reason not to do anything because, wow, that's the solution. It sounds really, really good. But as you both said, it's really not and not feasible in that way. So it's, you know, I find that dangerous that that's in there because yeah. It lets people off the hook in a yeah way. yeah i agree with you i think that they um a lot of the media coverage was around um that swiss firm climeworks which which I, I think is an interesting company i mean they have that they have they're sucking since you know for the last few years they suck greenhouse gases out of the air near zurich haven't they and they feed it into a greenhouse where co2 is like a um uh, an airborne fertilizer helps the plants grow a little bit and they've been experimenting with that but you're right i mean it, it is it is crazily expensive they they have all sorts of contracts with microsoft and stripe and a whole lot of howdy i think and swiss ray and so on to to, to develop this technology and you're right they get they're getting a lot of money they've got a lot of media coverage i've, I've written about them several times myself I'm, I'm, I'm a, I must say I'm a bit of a fan of the idea that you might be able to a fan, huh? <laughs> that you might be able to solve this somehow. 
But I, I think we shouldn't get distracted from this when, you know, as we were saying earlier, you know, a tree could do this stuff um, pretty well um, as well, Evelyn. I know that the previous IPCC report spoke an awful lot about BECS, this other technology, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, uh, which would mean you'd set up a power plant that burnt, let's say, wood pellets or crop waste or something, and then it would capture the CO2 from burning it, and then it would bury that CO2 underground. And that would kind of be another way of taking carbon out of the air, ultimately, and taking it out of the, the natural cycle. Um, uh, you know, that again, you know, they try and phrase it to say, this, of course, is just to take on the residual carbon emissions. Um, I, I spoke to one of the authors who was talking about talking about this and some 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 of the governments who of course have to approve this report line by line or at least the summary for policymakers a lot of them were saying you know this is crazy we can't we can't have this stuff in here about carbon dioxide removal but some of the scientists said well wait a minute you know you guys have set net zero targets for 2050 for your greenhouse gas emissions net zero means you know if if you don't want these type of technologies why didn't you just set zero targets then? Because there's always going to be net zero means you're still going to have to offset something like there may be some residual emissions from particularly difficult parts of uh, the economy, agriculture or some sort of transport emissions, some residual use of oil or gas or something. But but you're right. It's, it's, it's a total, it's used as a total smokescreen, a total sort of get out of jail free card by the, oil industry and so on to sort of just hope we can pull the wool over the rest of our eyes and, and make us all believe that somehow there'll be some magic magic think uh, magic fix for all of this a silver bullet you know it's all it's all it's all too predictable isn't it from the oil industry sadly but um, I, I don't think I, I personally i think we should still look into all these technologies but just you know don't overestimate how, how far they can go yeah, and it's yeah. What do you think, likely Alex? the oil industry that is that is pushing this because they will be the ones building it. You know, it's not uh, it's not going to be the bicycle repair shop on the corner <laughs> going to, to to build these uh, these huge machines. So it's uh, it's in their it's in their interest. And the other reason why it's in their interest is that as soon as people get a feeling like you can just you know buy a huge vacuum cleaner that somehow sucks it all up out of the air. Uh, and then the problem is solved, then you you get a kind of narrative amongst people like, okay, we can we can clean this up later, you know, like like in a cafe, you know, somebody drops a beer, oh, we'll we'll clean it up tomorrow, and that is that is not that the way that the episode works. It's it's a highly highly inefficient way of um, of, of, of 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 cleaning up. You should just avoid that it is uh, produced in the first place. So. I, I guess there's been a lot of lobbying and compromising, and I, I believe that the uh, combined delegations of the oil industry at COP26 were, I think, a, a, a bigger delegation than the than the biggest national delegation, if I remember correctly. <laughs> um, so, yeah. if if oil industry would be a country, and and, and looking at their influence, they are. Uh, they are just one of the biggest countries in the world. They're extremely influential. I mean, look at how they manipulate the American elections, for instance. That's it's uh, so so. They have a lot of their own interests uh, there, and yeah, they just love 
technology to, to solve things, whereas planting a tree is not a bad idea. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So let me yeah. see. We, well, we've been talking for an hour. Oh, I hear Evelyn. Sorry. Yes. Well, yeah, thank you. And I agree with Alistair that it's the technology is really fascinating. And that project they have outside of Zurich or in Zurich, outskirts of Zurich, whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, I've been, I've been following that as well a little bit. And um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff, but on a, on a small scale, I guess, at the moment. But yeah, we'll see what happens. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, I mean, Evelyn. Everything starts at a small scale. I mean, uh... Look, look at the internet. It uh, it started also in Switzerland, and the small scale was just two rooms communicating to each other at CERN, and uh, and now now we are all communicating to each other. So yeah, you, you have to start somewhere. So yeah, I th I I think we don't have the luxury to to just pick and choose and say we can only do this or that. But I do think that with the limited resources that we have. We should focus on what is uh, what is most important and what is uh, what is most efficient. And I think huge efficiency can still be won on just spending less. I just spoke to somebody in the Netherlands who went to London and bought a plane ticket because it was cheaper than the train ticket. How is this possible? I mean, everybody <laughs> knows that a plane is hugely polluting. So we we are that is a cost to the planet. A plane ticket should be more expensive than a train ticket unless when you go from New York to London because then there are no many not many alternatives. But traveling in Europe should just be done by train uh unless you really want to spend a lot of luxury for the luxury of flying. And I I thought it was also difficult to watch during the COVID um, when, when, when the pandemic started, how all governments were scrambling to save their national airlines. Oh, those poor airlines that had always, you know, they had never paid tax anyway on their kerosene. But now our taxpayers' money was used to save the airlines instead of improving the communication between the different railway lines in Europe, because I still find it extremely difficult to buy a plane ticket, a, a train ticket in the Netherlands, going from one country to another. I mean, it 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 cost me so much time to work out how to do it. Whereas if I buy a plane ticket, I've done it in five minutes. So I think that is um, just one example where I think we we just need governments to 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 step in there and deprivatize a lot of those uh, those trains, especially in the UK. I think it's a nightmare. And uh, it's uh, there's there's just uh, yeah in in a lot of the solutions whether people like it or not uh, on on climate change are, are actually that we need more government instead of less which wouldn't have been necessary if previous governments would have been more responsible in their decisions. Yeah, we've got lots of good comments here on the coming in. I don't think we've got time to look at all of them. But you know, Jay Reyes is asking. Um, Whereas noticing Atlantic cools, will it cool the Middle East? Wow, I guess you know there's there's all these worries that the the Gulf Stream system that will you know that is that is that is that brings warm water northwards to the North Atlantic and keeps places like where I'm in Oslo ice free, um, or at least most of the fjord ice free, and keeps it you know you can grow wheat here at, at the latitude of Alaska. Um, uh, because of the Gulf Stream coming north, and there are, there have been signs in some studies that say that you know this 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 great 
uh, overturning circulation is weakening and that, uh, of course, if that happened, <laughs> we wouldn't be worried about global warming so much because the whole place, if that, that system shut down, the whole of um, Northern Europe and the whole of um, North America, the east side of the, of the United States would be an awful lot colder. Um, I suspect that would spread as far as the Middle East as well, but uh, I, I, I have no idea how that would affect the Middle East. Yeah, they know uh, from geological a, records that um, if that happens, it goes relatively fast. It can just, in, in a decade or so, it can happen, but they don't know when it will happen. And the problem is there's a lack of data because they have only reliable data for the past 10 years. And in the past 10 years, there's been a 10% decrease in the, in the, uh, in the strengths of, of, of this current, uh, which goes roughly, let's say, from the Caribbean to, to Ireland. And uh, the idea is that it might change course and instead of going northeast, that it would go, let's say, along New York and then um, ending up west of Greenland. Um, uh, that would then result that, as you just said, that this, this cold water comes down on the other side, let's say on the side of, of, of northwest uh, Europe. That will influence weather patterns all over the world. I mean, look at El Nino. El Nino is basically a, a, a turning around of, of, of the system in uh, in the southern Pacific. That's, uh, so it was, uh, El, the name El Nino was, was given by fishermen in Peru that, that noticed this kind of roughly seven-year pattern uh, and, and then called it El Nino. And that influences the whole world. Um, if, if this would happen, and nobody knows... But all scientists say it is it is possible. Uh, yeah, then we then we really have a big problem. Is if it doesn't happen, the predictions are by uh, by the Potsdam Institute in Berlin that um, by 2050, uh, large parts of North Africa and the Middle East region will be for quite a few months in the year so hot that normal healthy people can no longer live there. So. Yeah, they could use they could use a bit of cooling, and they could use a bit of sensible policies by by the world leaders. Yeah, it's um again we're back to all hands on deck, aren't we? A lot of sensible policies and a lot of sensible actions. Um, but we kind of we you know this is the in a way this is this is the third report by the IPCC, and this is kind of the the last big report. They've only got one more to come, uh, which is going to be the synthesis report. I'm told that that's meant to be. 50 pages long, um, which includes a summary of your policymakers. But um, on past um, form, I don't think that's good. that's very likely. You know, so far we've got we've had um, a record over the three sections we've had so far. We've had more than 10,000 pages, which is um, 10 times the length of the very first report that came out in 1990. I spoke the other day with Bob Watson, who's a former chair of the IPCC. Who wrote the very first chapter of the of the IPCC of the first um, working group one of the IPCC back in 1990? And he was told, "Keep it short. Short is shorter is better." Um, so now we're up at you know 10,000 pages. Um, so, but of course the IPCC, as some people are alluding to in the comments, you know, it's um, it's the governments that make it longer um, for at least in the summary for policymakers. Uh, shoveling in stuff and wanting to water it down and um, and doing what they can to preserve their own interests but but still the government buy-in there i think is a, is is the important thing pretty much everybody defends the idea of having a summary for policymakers because governments can't then walk away and say oh nobody ever told us about this 
um, oh, global warming, you know, more heat waves. No, you know, everybody has everybody has signed off off on it now. So um, we're fairly clear on that. And um, you know, this latest report does talk about coal and oil and gas, the need to move from fossil fuels to renewable energies, and and with this great urgency that is mapped out. So, you know. I don't know when the next IPCC report will be. That they come at, um, they come in intervals of six or seven or eight years. Um, the last one was in 2013-14. So now we're, you know, we're eight years away from that. So, but it's a, it's a really valuable uh, work, especially when it's signed off by governments. At least the, the summary for policymakers. But it's, wow, I, I'm not going to read it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Not going to read it all, but you can search. You can download these things and search through them for keywords, which is a useful way of doing it. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's uh, for me impossible to read so much. And and the uh, the thing I remember from the days that I was a diplomat, it was just you're so busy, you don't have time to read big reports. You just don't because you're you're the 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 way that a a government works is differently. You have to um, you have to be present. You have to be in rooms. You are negotiating. You later have to report back to capital, etc. You're so busy. Um, you need a few hours of sleep. You don't have time to read a a complicated report. And so uh, nobody is going to read thousands of page, pages. Not one person in government. You should be happy if they read. Uh, this this negotiated report and that's good that they negotiate about it for two weeks because at least they are forced to to know what is in there and to negotiate about it. So, but uh, Alex, if, let's say if you if you were the dip, the Dutch diplomat of the IPCC and you had to present these findings to your minister um, to the and to explain how long would you what sort of length of paper would a minister get? Do you think out of this? I would say two pages. Two pages. I've exactly. yeah, heard that before. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, the minister, and that is not that's not a negative thing about my minister or anybody else. But in in I think worldwide, any minister in a government is responsible for so much that uh, you um, you can't uh, you can't expect him to say everything. I mean, a minister of foreign affairs is at the same time responsible for somebody that's put in jail somewhere on the other side of the world and is also has to do an opening speech somewhere and he has to appear in parliament and is also responsible for the war in Ukraine and also has a thousand other things. So there's just physically a limit to how much a minister can read. And I, I've seen the piles of paper that a minister every day gets in his, uh, in his little suitcase, big suitcase actually, that is sent home. Um, look at Yes Minister, all those little red suitcases that they always uh, give <laughs> home to Jim Haggard. Yeah, right. um, that is uh, that's absolutely impossible to do. Of course, the um, my government and, and let's say anywhere in Western Europe, it works the same way, is that the civil servants that are uh, the diplomats and, and other experts that are that are present at those meetings, they prepare a long letter, much longer letter to Parliament that could easily be like like twenty pages, um, that explains in normal language what is in there that any parliamentarian or journalist or just just normal person can can understand it. Um, the minister signs off to it, so if the minister really has the time, will read the whole stuff. But um, I remember the the uh, the, the president of. Um, 
Uh, the CEO of Procter & Gamble once made a, a famous uh, statement saying, any memo that I get may be no longer than one page. And if you can't get it on one page, it's not important enough and I won't read it. Um, it's, uh, and I think that is kind of the reality in such a kind of job where you spend so much time in meeting rooms, etc. You can't read. So you have to rely on people that have the time to read it all and that are... Uh, supporting you, but I think of of let's say uh, the the diplomats that are present and uh, in negotiating on IPCC, they don't read those three thousand pages. But the bigger the de the bigger delegations, they will have a close contact or hire consultants with a real climate change uh, background that are joining them. And they dive into all these uh, all these difficulties. It's a bit like a legal team in in one of those television uh, court cases that you always have in America. You know, there's the, the the key lawyer cannot have read any little piece of evidence, but he's got this whole team, and the one is focused on this issue and the other on that, and they have all this they have all this knowledge, but it's not in the brain of one person because that's just just impossible. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Two pages, right? I mean, and we've got. We've got a condense that's condensing three or four thousand pages into two pages, and I just wish, I you know, if, it would be so wonderful if these things could be presented in plain language. If 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 I don't know if every government in the world were willing to share those diplomatic cables to to with 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 their citizens, you know, this is what we passed to the minister today as the conclusions yeah. from this report. You know, I think that would be just great, great piece of public information to. Uh, to see what what people are highlighting, because there's there's an awful lot of things you could pick out of these reports as a as a relevant uh, bit of information, the headline piece of information that the minister needs to know, so that he or she um, can uh, can can decide the policies in future. Yeah, but hey, yeah, yeah. probably next time. <laughs> the way it would look like is um, partly uh, like. Um, just an article in the Guardian or Reuters or something that just explains in plain language, you know, this report came out and these are the main conclusions. But then any uh, minister in the world will get like a second page and that is like, you know, what are our specific interests here? So let's say the, the minister for oil in um, uh, Saudi Arabia maybe gets the same first page saying, you know, this is basically in the report, there's still time, but we really have to do a lot, etc. But then the page two for the minister in Saudi Arabia would look completely different than the page two of uh, the minister in a small island uh, developing states, uh, which will probably say, you know, order more sandbags because uh, the, the water will keep rising and whether, you know, a, a minister in an oil producing country Will have different interests, so th so that is, um, yeah, that's that's the way they 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 are informed, and I always thought that they were they were quite readable, um, just because a minister is not a scientist, so uh, you have to make policies that you can explain to the people. So I I guess it will be worldwide more or less the same system that they uh, they work on, but yeah, you need your you need your experts around you, and that's why you need a big team for an issue like this. Yeah, yeah. One thing I wish they'd do is to change the cycles, actually, because we, now we have these six, seven, eight-year cycles, and um, the Paris Agreement, of course, operates on five-year cycles. It's um, We ratchet up the Paris Agreement. Everybody's meant to come back every five years with a more ambitious commitment, and um, then 
you know, five years would be, I don't know when, you'd have to do it. And, you know, of course, pandemics get in the way of all of these things. But, uh, you know, if you could, or maybe you don't need to do it every five years at all. You can just have a sort of Wikipedia page and um, that would uh, sort it out. You could have it constantly updated and um, the findings could be updated. As they said, one researcher told me there were fewer than, there were about 300 uh, scientific reports back in 1990 that mentioned climate change or global warming. This is Corinne Lequere at um, the University of East Anglia. And she said that, so that, that doesn't take an awful lot of time. People can read through those. Now, she said, in the last, since the last IPCC reports, there have been 230,000 papers uh, referring to climate change or global warming. And it's just not physically possible to read that anymore. You've got to, in, you've got to have data science. You've got to have machine learning. You've got to have artificial intelligence to do this. And, and that, of course, uh, is a whole minefield of um, trying to get that through um, any IPCC approval when, you know, inevitably people who live in developing countries don't have access to these tools to the same yeah. extent as, as people in rich countries do. So, you know, the, the participation of... Um, uh, scientists from the global south is is growing but it's still only like forty uh, percent I think so we really need to reform the IPCC yeah. um, well, on the other hand the way it works with science is that you don't have to read anything you you read what you need I mean it's like if you would count up all the weather forecasts that have been produced all over the world that is that is like millions of weather forecasts nobody in the world is reading them I just read the weather forecast for Ottawa which is pretty awful at the moment and um, uh, and I've read enough. It takes me one minute. I'm not going to read, you know, the 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 weather forecast of the Caribbean. That would only make me very jealous. So I think that's that's the same with uh, with science, of course. So uh, yeah, so I I don't know how they're going to reform it. I I see a lot of calls for reform, and uh, yeah, we'll see. But of course, the main issue is that with the knowledge that we have now, you know, government should really take action. And I if I I mean this. I mean, imagine where we are in, in the point of history now. So there's the best scientists in the world. They all come together and they agree. And also all the governments in the world agree because they signed up on the report. And that report saying in very simple language, like, hey, guys, we really can't wait. We are destroying the only planet that we live on. And it hardly hits the news. I mean, there's there's more attention for some some court cases or some guy slapping another guy in the face somewhere in uh, in California, uh, than than for a report that says you know our our little beautiful precious planet is 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 all going down the drain and we should really take action otherwise we have no planet left. And then it it ends up on page five in the newspapers. I, I find it incredible that people people don't get it, and especially for climate scientists, this must be this must be so frustrating. They see what's happening and they don't see any action. And uh, yeah. yeah, so let's just hope yeah. for for uh, at least we woke a few people up uh, today. I hope who are listening. Let's hope. Yeah, to, I think so. To, it's to now or never. Yeah, and and, uh, <laughs> and that that people realize how how really really serious this issue is, and that um, even though we are just with what about twenty people here, and then I hope a few hundred other people will will listen to this later. But I I just hope that you know at at least with with our little little gang, the people gathering here and listening here, that we. We just realized that there are very 
small things that you can do, but they, they, they count for everybody. And you're not just the, the people listening to this podcast are not just one in 8 billion. We are more like one in a billion or something because we, we are all without exception part of this, uh, this, this uh, 10% of the world. As I recently said, you're part of the top 1% people in the world. If you earn an annual income of $30,000, that's the top 1%. So this top 10% that was mentioned in the report, I don't know where that threshold is, but that must be much, much lower. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we're, we're all part of that. So uh, you can do a bit. Uh, the best thing is uh, vote for a party that takes this serious and, and uh, raise the issue with, with uh, friends and others and, and, and uh, whatever, start a call-in show to, to tell people about what is happening <laughs> on the planet. Don't call and we'll it listen planet. to it, yeah. <laughs> I'll be a listener. <laughs> and, uh, and, and just, um, yeah, and do, and do the basic things. Try to fly less, um, try to eat less meat. You know, those are, those are easy things that you can do that, that, that really, that, do make a small change but if all of, all of us do it then we uh, then we are on the, on the right track we've been spoken far longer yep. than the 45 minutes that we aim for uh, as always i know that it's getting awfully late and it's even here getting a little bit darkish already but that is that weather forecast that i didn't want to read and um so thanks uh, thanks all so much uh, for listening any last thoughts from you alistair uh, it's now and ever i think yeah that's it alex i think yeah it's still doable, but wow, you know, get on with it right now, yeah? And get out, as you say, and lobby your governments. Thanks. It's been great today. Thank you. <laughs> it's a great Thanks Sunday. for listening, everyone. Okay, guys, put heat a little bit lower. Take that cold shower. Put on a, put on a sweater. <laughs> eat less meat. And uh, see you all uh, Turn up your heating. Uh, first, the first podcast. I will, I'll be up in the air in the weekends, uh, normally a bit later on the Saturday and the Sunday, but I don't have time yet. Uh, I'll certainly be back on Monday at 11 o'clock Eastern time. Um, next week, same time, same place. Alistair and I will be here for the weekly catching up of the environmental news. Thanks so much and uh, hope to see you all back again. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye.